Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Forge. It has been over a month. Um, I uh, took a break uh, once we got into Advent, and I have not been back until after, obviously, the first of the year. So here we are on January 12th, 2023, and we are going to continue on with our study in the book of Galatians. Perhaps at some time in the future, I'll go through a series of Advent type uh, teachings here on the Forge, but uh, this year was not the year for that. So as we turn our attention back to Galatians, getting out of the Christmas season and getting into the new year, I want to give a brief review of what I've covered up to this point. Uh, we've looked at uh, chapter one and we broke it up into three parts. The first one was Christ, his message, his church. That was verses one through five. Uh, then we took the second part, uh, verses 6 through 10, there is only one gospel. And then I ended with verses 11 through 24 uh, in a teaching entitled, Set Apart for the Gospel. And um, if you need to go back and listen to the podcast's previous episodes uh, to find out where we are, uh, that's totally fine. That's why it's here on the podcast. And we're going to be picking up today in Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Jesus gave a parable of the wheat and the tares in Matthew 13, verses 24 through 30. And what we can learn from that parable is that wherever the seed of God's truth is sown, there's also going to be the seeds of Satan, the lies of the enemy. In the book of Acts chapter 20, we find that Paul warns them there that they are to be on guard against wolves who would come in in sheep's clothing. They would kill the flock. Um, Paul claims that these wolves will say perverse things. They will draw people away from the truth. And if you've ever heard of the phrase, a sheep in wolves clothing, this is actually where it comes from. It comes from this portion of scripture. It's amazing to me how much even common expressions are influenced by biblical worldview and Christian thought in our culture. Paul instructs Timothy that people will fall away from the faith and go after deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. And I want you to let that sink in for a minute. Paul does not say that the wolves have it mostly right, except for a couple of things, or they've written some really good books, or they're on the radio, or they're on TV, so they must be correct. And um, they got a couple things wrong, but they're mostly right. That's not what Paul says. Paul calls it doctrines of demons. Doctrine is just a fancy word for teaching. So let that sink in. It's not to be taken lightly. I would encourage you to go read 1 Timothy chapter 4 and see the instructions there that Paul has for Timothy. So Paul the Apostle was always fighting this, or so it would seem. Um, false teachers would come in after Paul, and they would attack his apostleship, and in doing so, they're actually attacking the gospel that he preached. The idea was that he could not possibly be a real apostle like the Lord's 12. They accused him of preaching something different than Peter and all the others that were in Jerusalem and what we find here in the second chapter of Galatians is Paul's account of a trip to Jerusalem where a council was called to proclaim what the gospel truly is. Now, with that said, let's hear the words of the one true and living God from Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them the gospel, which I preached among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in, who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. 
But from those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seemed to be something added nothing to me. But on the contrary, when they saw the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I was eager to do. So the first point I want to point out is Paul's coming or Paul's arrival or Paul's travel to Jerusalem. Point number one. And verses one and two, um, you will recall from chapter one that Paul had already told us that he did not see any of the apostles there except for Peter and the half-brother of Jesus, that would be James. And you may recall that we made a distinction between James, this half-brother of Jesus, and James, the son of Zebedee. Um, that was his first trip to Jerusalem. He stayed for 15 days. And then Paul has a second trip, which is recorded in Acts 11 and 12. He and Barnabas took a collection to Jerusalem from Antioch. There had been a famine in Judea. And Antioch wanted to send assistance to Jerusalem. So in our text today, we read, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. And in that, we find evidence that this is a third journey. Now, there are some scholars who debate and they say that the trip in Acts 11 and 12 is the same trip as what we're reading here. Uh, it really doesn't matter. Um, I believe it's a separate trip. I believe it's a third trip. On the second trip, he doesn't mention um, Titus. On this third trip, he mentions Titus. Either way, whichever side you want to believe about that, it has absolutely no bearing on uh, what occurred at the council here that we're going to read about in Jerusalem. So it's interesting to note, and I've said this before, that when people travel to Jerusalem, they always go up to Jerusalem, and it has nothing to do with direction. So, for example, today we might say we're going to go up to a different city or a different state. We're referring usually, we're saying it's north of here. And then if we say we're going to go down somewhere, we're usually referring to traveling in a southerly direction. It's south of here. But that's not what it means when we read about Jerusalem in the Bible and people traveling to Jerusalem. There is this sense that Jerusalem is an elevated city. It is the city of God. It is the city of peace. And anytime you leave Jerusalem, no matter where you're going, as far as direction, north, south, east, or west, you're always going to be going down from Jerusalem. Those other cities are not elevated like Jerusalem. And so we find that Paul, Barnabas, and Titus are making a trip up to Jerusalem. Now, why did they do this? Well, according to Acts 15, there have been some professing, <clears throat> excuse me, Jewish Christians who came in after Paul, and they did not agree with Paul's message of the gospel of grace. And they decided that if a Gentile was going to become a Christian, they had to observe circumcision. Now, why did Titus take the trip? Well, we know that Titus was considered a spiritual son of Paul. If you read Titus chapter 1, uh, you'll find there in verses 4 and 5, Paul makes a reference to Titus being his spiritual child. And so we also know that Titus was an uncircumcised Gentile who had become a Christian. And he proved that a Gentile could be saved could become a Christian, that is, without circumcision. So I just want to pause here for a moment and talk very briefly about what a Jew is and what a Gentile is. And it's very simple. If you are not a Jew, you are a Gentile. If you are um, not a Jew by birth, you are a Gentile. 
has nothing to do with the color of your skin, what country you're from, what language you speak, or any other ethnic um, uh, barrier that we might want to put up there. It has only to do with your birth. So if you're not Jewish, you are a Gentile. I am a Gentile. So when we talk, when we talk about Jews and Gentiles, this is what we're making reference to. So why did Paul make the trip? Well, we know from Acts 15 that Paul went at the urging of the church in Antioch. But it also states in our text that he went by revelation. So in other words, God told him to go. Now, here's something that we can learn from this, and it really doesn't matter if the church told him to go, and then later it was confirmed by the Holy Spirit, or it was the other way around. Skeptics love this kind of thing. They'll point to Acts 15, and they'll go, hey, the church told Paul to go. And then over here in this other text, it says the Holy Spirit told him to go. You have a contradiction. No, friends, we don't have a contradiction. What we have is a harmony. <laughs> and, uh, you know, skeptics love to point out these things as though they are in conflict with each other. But what you see here, if you approach it with an open mind, holding the same standards that you would hold to anything else that you read historically, you would put these things together and you would see that the Holy Spirit and his church are in harmony together. So what matters here is that we see an affirmation. There's no contradiction. There is an affirmation. So verse two in our text says that Paul communicated to them that gospel, which I, that would be Paul speaking here, which Paul preached among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation. Lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. So what does this mean? Well, it means that Paul wanted to meet with the leaders of the church first. And he's meeting with them first, not to make sure that what he is preaching is the correct gospel, but to ensure that the Jerusalem leadership would not cave in to false teachers. So why does he call these people those who were of reputation? What does that phrase mean? Well, you have to understand that Paul is writing the book of Galatians after the Jerusalem Council. And so what this proves to us is that simply because the church in Jerusalem made a declaration about the gospel, it doesn't stop the Judaizers or false teachers from continuing to spread their false gospel, or as I referred to earlier, seeds of lies. So one of the reasons that Paul had to defend his apostleship is because these Judaizers, that's what they were called, false teachers, they made the statement or the claim that Paul was not an apostle. That is, he had no reputation. He was not, as they would say, giving the true gospel. And Paul was saying, look, even if it was true, and by the way, it's not, but I took my gospel to the church leadership in Jerusalem and they approved it. If you don't believe me, believe them. And there's two points I want us to take away from this. Number one, Paul did not receive his apostleship from the church leadership in Jerusalem. Uh, he received it from Christ himself, and you can read about that in the first chapter, and we have already covered that in the previous episodes. We talked about this already. It's very important that we understand Paul did not receive his apostleship from the church. He didn't receive it from the leadership in Jerusalem. And number two, what we need to notice is Paul preached the same gospel as the leadership was preaching in Jerusalem. So even though the Judaizers were coming in and they were making claims that Paul was preaching something different, it was in fact the Judaizers who were out of line. Paul was in harmony with Jerusalem. In other words, what he was saying in Antioch was the same thing that they were preaching in Jerusalem. So what does he mean when he says, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain? Again, you have to understand that these Judaizers were teaching something that is a big deal. This is no small disagreement. They're not simply interpreting it another way. This is not one of those things that we can agree upon 
like people will sometimes say, we can agree to disagree. Um, Christians uh, have what I've heard termed as in-house debates. There are things that we might disagree upon, but it has no bearing upon our doctrine of salvation. That's not what is going on here. These false teachers were teaching the very opposite of the gospel or the antithesis of the gospel. This phrase about running in vain, and it's just another one of those idioms. Uh, we've talked about this before, a figure of speech, and it's an excellent example of why it's so important to know what you're reading when you read the Bible. There are different forms of literature in the Bible, and you need to know what you're looking at. There are narrative forms, poetry, prophecy. There is law. There is sometimes where it's figurative, figurative language. And there are other times where, just like any other language, just like we do in English, they have a figure of speech. And that's what we have here. What it does mean is this. While the Jerusalem leaders were not the source of Paul's authority, his efforts to preach the gospel would have been hindered if these influential men had opposed him. In other words, imagine Paul saying to the Jerusalem leadership, this is the gospel. Are you with me? And we find that the apostles did fully approve of what Paul was preaching and they didn't add anything to it. See, this is a confirmation and it shows us that the gospel of grace is correct and that a message of works, and in this case it was circumcision, it is truly evil. Works-based salvation is not a mere disagreement. It is a lie. I honestly know non-Christians that do believe there is a coming day of judgment, but they believe that based upon their good deeds and what they've done supposedly good, that they are going to be able to stand before the judge of the universe and claim that they didn't need Jesus. They did not need salvation offered through the only begotten son of God. They're going to do it based on works. And friends, this is a lie. And a great question to ask those who have that philosophy, if you run into them or you're trying to share the gospel with people and they'll tell you that, hey, I'm a pretty good person, ask them how they define good. How do you define good? By what standard? And you cannot use my Bible as your standard because you've rejected that. So who and what philosophically do you appeal to to say that your deeds are good? Good in comparison to what? And using your worldview, you cannot use the Bible. From your kind of thinking, why is what you have done any better or worse than what someone else has done? And see, this is a failure of secular thinking. They honestly believe that they're going to be able to justify themselves before a righteous God. He is the one who made the law. He is the one who made the rules. He is the source of all things good. Therefore, he is the standard that we are to be compared to. We don't compare ourselves to each other. We compare ourselves to God's standard, which is perfection and holiness and righteousness as he defines it, not as I define it, not as you define it. And so what are you going to do with that, friends? Because here's the truth. I'm not perfect and neither are you. So what are you going to do? You've got a real situation if you think that works, your good deeds, or any other way you want to define it, what you've done in your life, if you think that's going to carry you through the courtroom of God.
It's not going to work. That brings us to the second point. And that point is Paul's companion. So first we talked about Paul's trip. Now we're going to talk about this young man who made the trip with him. In verses 3 through 5, I'd like to turn our attention to this man who made the trip with Paul, and his name was Titus. It's as if Paul is bringing Titus, this Gentile, along with him as proof that the Holy Spirit had indeed come to the Gentiles just as he had come to the Jews. Titus was an uncircumcised Greek, and he would later become the bishop of Crete. We might say the head pastor or the lead pastor or the senior pastor of Crete. And that's according to Titus 1 verse 5. And he remained uncircumcised. Why is this a big deal? Well, the whole idea of circumcision was not some kind of a new thing that was invented just to make life difficult for Gentiles who wanted to become Christians. This was an extremely important uh, right to the nation of Israel. It goes back to the covenant made with Abraham. God commanded this right to be done not only for Abraham, but for all the males in his household and all of Abraham's seed. In other words, all the male descendants of Abraham were to have this rite of circumcision. This was a way of showing that a male was part of the nation of Israel. And R.C. Sproul puts it this way, quote, It was the rite that established the Old Testament covenant, and it was the sign of that covenant. This covenant and its sign were 2,000 years old at this point in history. So as we're reading here in Galatians, you've got 2,000 years of this rite of circumcision being done in the nation of Israel. And you can read about it in Genesis 17. And I want you to consider the following, and I covered some of this when I went through the book of Genesis. Number one, circumcision was ordained by God under the terms of the Old Covenant. It was making a statement, and it involved cutting. I'm not going to be crude or gross or overly graphic here. We all know what uh, what circumcision is. If you don't know, uh, go do your own research and find out what circumcision involves. But first, it was God stating that he had set apart this nation of Israel for a special relationship with him. He had cut them away from the other nations on earth. So there's a object lesson, if you will, going on here. I have cut you out of the other nations. You're going to be a special nation unto me. And then second, it was the recipient stating As a part of me has been cut away, may God cut me away from himself if I break the conditions of the covenant. Kind of a big deal. Another thing I want to point to you about circumcision is it was also a reminder. So firstly, it was ordained by God under the terms of the old covenant. And there are two sub points under that. Number one, God was stating that he had set the nation of Israel apart for a special relationship with him. And secondly, the recipient was stating, if I don't keep the terms of the covenant, may God cut me away from himself. But there's another thing here that I want us to focus on, and that was that not only was it ordained by God, but circumcision was a reminder. It was a reminder. And there are three sub points I want to think about as we consider the reminder. There were three people, ideally, who were going to see this mark on the male child. See, it happened at eight days. At eight days, the child would be taken, a Jewish child would be taken, and uh, circumcision would be performed, and the child would be named. So number one, the parents are going to see this mark on their son. Each time the male baby is taken care of, a diaper is changed, or a bath is given, or any kind of normal parental care is given to this male child, the parents are going to be reminded, my son is part of a chosen people. 
Number two, the male himself is going to see it, obviously. It will be an obvious sign in his own physical body, and he will be reminded that he and all of his offspring are going to be part of a chosen nation. It is no coincidence that God performed the circumcision or required the circumcision to be performed in the area of the body where it is. It has direct relationship to the offspring of Jewish people. And then thirdly, the wife would see it. The wife would see it. So the parents would see it. The male son himself would see it. And then when he's married, of course, obviously, his wife would be made aware of it. And she would be reminded that her husband is part of a chosen people. And therefore, she being united with him in marriage was also part of this covenant people. And any children that came from her and came from this union, they too would be part of a covenant people. Paul addresses this whole issue again in Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, where he writes, In him you, talking to Christians, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. So what is Paul talking about here? Well, he explains by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ buried with him in baptism in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, I'm not going to fully develop this in this particular episode here today, but this is one of those scriptures that we can point to as the basis of baptism of the children of believers. Not the baptism of just anybody who walks in the church and says, hey, I need my kids to be baptized. No, but the children of believers This passage is also one reason that we believe that baptism has replaced circumcision as the sign of the new covenant between God and his people. We welcome the children of believers into the visible worldwide church. Notice I said visible church. We strive to teach them the doctrines of grace, and we pray that in the process of time that our Lord will call them to himself. We recognize, however, that just as circumcision did not guarantee that an Israelite person, man, would be saved eternally, we recognize it was an outward sign of the covenant. So it is with water baptism. Water baptism does not save, but it is that outward sign for the children of Christians and adult believers alike. So if we believe that water baptism was a means of or a way to salvation, then we would be just as guilty as the Judaizers of Paul's time. We cannot work for salvation. We cannot add to the completed work of Christ. Salvation is free, and the conditions of the new covenant are simply receiving God's free gift of grace by faith through Christ. And that leads me to the next point that I want to talk about here, and that is matters that are non-essential. And I just kind of alluded to those just a moment ago. These in-house debates, it's called adadophria. In other words, it's just a fancy word that means that we've got disagreements among Christians, but they do not affect our salvation. These things are indifferent which is what the word adadophra means, indifferent. Indifferent to what? Indifferent to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So one example is the differing views among Christians on how the last things are going to come about. There are those who are called dispensational pre-millennial, meaning they believe that the church is going to be raptured and then there's going to be a great tribulation. There are those that hold to that belief, but they believe it's going to happen. The rapture is going to happen halfway through the tribulation. 
there are those who believe that the church is going to go all the way through the tribulation. And those are just three different views right there. And they would disagree among themselves. There are those who are all millennial, meaning that they believe the millennial reign of Christ is happening right now, that Christ rules from heaven. In a sense, there is this already, but not yet, fulfillment of prophecy. There are, and they, and by the way, all millennial folks are not looking for a rapture of the church or the dispensational scheme of looking at eschatology. There are others who are post-millennial, meaning that eventually the entire world will be Christianized in one form or another, not necessarily that everyone is going to be uh, a born-again Christian, but that the worldview, the influence of Christian thought will be the primarily dominant um, view, worldview over the entire world. And so there are different views about how things are going to end. I would emphasize to you, dear Christian, it doesn't matter when it, in terms of your salvation. Believe whatever you want to believe about these things. We're talking about future events. Another example is some Christians abstain completely from alcohol. They believe that if they drink alcohol, it is a sin to them. And there are other Christians who do not share that conviction. In fact, there are those who will not even have real wine at the Lord's table. And this is a big deal because there are Christians who have no problem at all taking a little tiny, probably not even a half ounce of true alcoholic wine at the Lord's table. These things are indifferent to salvation. Should we have real wine or should we have non-alcoholic grape juice? There are Christians who think I'm wrong about everything I just said about the covenant and its relationship to water baptism, especially where infants are concerned. They believe in what is called believer's baptism or credo baptism. And I would just add that I do too. I would never baptize an adult who just wanted to get wet. I would ask that adult, have you received Christ? Are you a born again Christian? Because there's a difference in this way of thinking between the sign of the covenant on the infant child of believers and the sign of the covenant on a grown man or woman who want to become Christians and be saved. So there's a difference between the word may and the word must. There's a difference between thinking that you should do something and that because you should do this thing or not do this particular thing, that it becomes mandatory now for all other Christians in order to truly receive salvation. These things are indifferent. All these examples that I gave just now, they're indifferent to salvation. I encourage you to read your scriptures, pray about these things as a Christian, and ask the Lord to show you what are your convictions about these particular things. Another example in the Bible that we can find is in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, where we find that some Christians had a problem eating certain kinds of food. Because you see, pagans would use food items in their religious ceremonies, and they would offer food to their false gods, which I think is hilarious because... Your stone or wooden idol cannot see, cannot smell, cannot taste, cannot speak, cannot hear your prayers. So you're going to take this food out to an idol who isn't going to do anything with it. So you're going to have leftover food. And I would just ask the pagan, what kind of God are you serving that has to eat? And people will say, well, Jesus ate. Well, sure he ate. But God, the God of the universe, the one who I serve, does not have to eat as a matter of sustenance and sustaining himself. He is the eternally self-sufficient, all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful God. He doesn't need food. But the point was, some Christians felt like, I can't 
buy and eat this food in the marketplace that has been offered to pagans, to pagan gods. I can't have it. And there were other Christians that were saying, what's the big deal? Food is food. Well, Paul says, and I'm going to paraphrase this here, and you can go read it for yourself. Paul says, food is food. You do not have to eat it if those are your convictions. However, if you don't share those convictions, you can certainly have some. So, you know, go get the food, cook it up, take it home, cook it up and enjoy your food. However, what you can't do is take a conviction like that and make it mandatory for all other Christians as a method of earning or achieving salvation. These things do not impact salvation. There is liberty in Christ. Legalism versus liberty. Legalism is when you take something which belongs in a category of may, you may do this, or you may not do this, and we move it from that category of may, and we put it over in must. And our takeaway from all of this is that if one Christian feels that he must do or do not something as a matter of his own personal conviction, then by all means, follow that conviction. However, if someone now begins to demand that others do the same thing as a matter of salvation, then we have slipped into what is called legalism. And legalism is always going to lead you to some kind of bondage. It's going to be some kind of a checklist. And let me assure you that you're never going to meet your checklist. Even if you're the one who wrote it for yourself, you're going to fail. You're going to fall short. And this is precisely why grace is so important grace. Being a Christian is not about keeping a list of good deeds versus a list of your bad deeds. Being a Christian means freedom. So on essentials, we do not compromise. What is an essential? Well, I would point you to the five solas. I would point you to scripture alone, Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone, for the glory of God alone. Those are essentials. The inspiration of scripture, I'm not going to compromise on that. And there's several other things that I'm not going to develop here right now in this episode, but you get the idea. There are things that are essential. If you're going to be a Christian, these are the things that define what a Christian is. And there are other things that we can have differences on, and it has no effect on those essential doctrines. They are non-essentials. Christ is much bigger than any differences that we have over these other things. The same Jesus who saved me actually does save people who (laughs) do not think exactly like I do on every single subject that there is. And in Paul's case here in Galatians, we see that circumcision could certainly fall into that category of something which may be done or it may not be done. In other words, if someone feels that they should physically be circumcised, that's fine if you want to do that. They may do that. But it is an error to say that it must be done by everyone in order for them to become a Christian. This brings us to our third point, which is Paul's commission. In verses 6 through 10, it lets us know that the apostles were of one mind. They confirmed Paul's message, and in a matter of speaking, they were saying in answer to that question that I asked earlier, Paul, we recognize your calling, and yes, we stand with you. God's given you a mission. You are to go preach the gospel of grace to the Gentiles, and we stand with you. Circumcision is not required. And I want to show you something here about the apostles, which comes not only from this passage, but from other passages of Scripture as well. And when we put it all together, you start to see this full and true picture of what's going on. In verse 9, we find a list of several apostles of the Lord. James is placed first there. Uh, He comes first in the oldest of all the manuscripts that we have of this passage. And in most Bibles, in fact, I'm going to say 
that's the way it's rendered here in my Bible. Uh, just about every, I, I don't think I've ever seen it listed any other way. He's the first one that's listed. He's the one that's known as James the Just. He is the Lord's half-brother uh, from chapter one that we already talked about. And he has also been known as Camel Knees. There's a tradition that says that he spent so much time in prayer on his knees that he developed camel, uh, calluses on his knees and they called him Camel Knees. Now, we don't know if that's true. That's not in the scriptures anywhere, but it's one of those things that I kind of scratch my head and kind of wonder about sometimes. But James, the disciple, has been called James the greater. In other words, to distinguish between James the just, the half-brother of Jesus, or camel knees, and to um, make that distinction that there was a James who was also a disciple of our Lord, James the greater. Now, what we know about James the greater, the disciple, is that he was beheaded by Agrippa in Acts 12. And this happened before the Jerusalem Council. So this is another reason why we know which James we're talking about. So James the Just, the half-brother of Jesus, is the one who's in view here. He was the first bishop of Jerusalem. He presided over the council according to Acts 15. And he was called the Just because of his strict adherence to the law. And this made him uh, popular among the Jewish Christians. But he guarded them against their tendency to go after extremes. So he's a good fit to be the pastor in Jerusalem to a primarily Jewish congregation. Peter is next to be mentioned in the scripture. Now you're reading along and you go, wait a minute, I see Cephas here and you're calling him Peter. Again, don't let that confuse you or alarm you. Cephas is Aramaic for Peter. Um, and actually, if you want to get really technical, Peter's name was Simon. It was our Lord who renamed him Simon Peter. He has the surname Peter. So in Mark 3, 16 through 17, that's where you'll find everything I just talked about. Peter's original name was Simon. And the Greek form of uh, Simeon, which is uh, Hebrew, Simeon, the Greek form is Simon. So that's who he is. That's how we know we're talking about Simon Peter. But just as it is common for people today to have more than one name, like James or Jim or Richard and Rick and Rich and probably who knows how many you can think of, um, Jonathan becomes John. And sometimes I've heard nicknames and I don't even know how they're getting that nickname from the original. So it's the same way back then. There's no big mystery here. But Peter was somewhat estranged from Jewish Christians because he had had interaction with Gentile Christians. Not to the extent that Paul had, but it's interesting that this makes Peter a good fit to go out and preach to the Jews of the dispersion, what's called the dispersion. And John records in his gospel, uh, chapter 12, verses 20 through 24, that Gentiles basically are going to be admitted into the new covenant. And so there's some evidence that we have from history that there was what's called a Johannian community uh, where John taught the gospel to both Jews and Gentiles alike. Uh, I'm going to put a question mark on that. We don't know for sure, <clears throat> but it makes sense. And here's the point that I'm going to get to. Our Lord knew exactly what he was doing, and he fitted each one of these apostles to their specific, I guess you could say, sphere of influence or a temperament. James was going to minister in Jerusalem to Jews, and it's a good fit because of his love for the law. Peter was going to go after the Jews of the dispersion, and that's a good fit there as well because of his background and experience. And John uh, may have had a ministry to both Jew and Gentile alike. Paul is next on the list. Paul, who by the miraculous and overwhelming suddenness of his conversion, had the whole current of his early Jewish prejudices turned into an utterly opposite direction. What do I mean by that? 
he was given a ministry to Gentiles. And you have to understand what Jews thought. And some of them to this day still think this, what they thought of Gentiles. And God tells, and we're going to develop this more in the next episode, but God tells Paul, Paul, you're going to go preach to the Gentiles. You are going to go preach the gospel of grace to those who have not been circumcised. And we should notice the unity of the message, not separately or individually, but collectively the apostles together represent Christ. He is the one head of the one church, one faith, one baptism. And we find here 12 foundation stones in the 12 apostles. They are all joined together to that one great foundation stone upon which they rest. In 1 Corinthians 3.11, it says, For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And in Revelation 21, we read that New Jerusalem descends out of heaven. This city has 12 foundations. They're named for each of the 12 apostles. And we find in verses 19 and 20 there that each of these foundation stones are adorned with precious stones, each of a different color. And there's no coincidence here. There is no coincidence that they're different colors. There's no coincidence that the apostles were sent out in different directions to preach the gospel of grace to people of all tongues, all tribes, all nations. I want you to think about, dear Christian, all the different colors of the people groups who are now admitted into a relationship with God through the new covenant of Jesus Christ. Think about that. All those Gentile nations now coming into a correct relationship with God through the new covenant in Jesus Christ. So in conclusion, I know I went a little long today. Um, I guess that's what happens whenever I stay away from the podcast too long. But here's the main point I want you to get out of today. If you don't get anything else, this is what I want you to hear. Salvation is free, totally free. Not only is it a free gift, which you cannot earn, it is the one thing in this life that will guarantee your personal freedom. And people get this backwards. They think that following our Lord is bondage to one of those checklists that I was talking about earlier. And they'll say things like, well, you know, Christians do this and they do that. And they don't do this and they don't do that. And they don't understand. They think that... <laughs> They think this all the while not seeing their own bondage to their own addictions, their own vices, and their own sin. They don't understand they are the ones who are in slavery. Christians, we are the ones who are free. It is salvation through Christ that sets us free to actually live and do those actions which are correct and right and good. Indeed, he has given us the freedom to choose the right and to reject the wrong. To put off the old, put on the new, and to sometimes <laughs> do it even for the right reasons because we're motivated by the love of Christ. There's been a heart change within. So be on guard against those who would add to this free gift. Do not fall for their lies, their perverted teachings, and their demonic doctrines. So until the next time, crew, I want to leave you with this. Uh, it is not in Galatians. This is in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. It says, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length, the depth and the height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Amen.
of discouragement and peace you cannot buy. Reflections of the old past seem to face you every day. But there's one thing yeah, I do know. Love on this. 